stand together as Aaron comes this morning to read our scripture for us. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 1 through 8. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you've been around our church for any amount of time, you know that probably my favorite of all my hobbies is collecting old books. And this is one of my favorite books that I have. It's a collector's edition of a book called Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. And he chronicles his journeys in the late 1800s, as far as we know, as the first person to ever sail around the entire world in a one-man vessel all by himself. It was actually a homemade boat that he named the Spray that he sailed all the way around the world and, and he chronicled it and wrote it down and it ended up being published as a book. I love this collector's edition because in addition to being a really cool old book, it also has some really cool old maps in it, another thing I like to collect. And it's also just filled with amazing, harrowing stories. As you might imagine, a person in the late 1800s sailing all the way around the world in a boat all by himself. Sometimes he faced the dangers of weather and waves and the sea. Sometimes he, he faces the danger of, of animals and sea life and all that goes with it. And my favorite story is the occasion where he faced danger from human beings. He drifted close to an unknown island, and before he knew it, Joshua Slocum was surrounded by canoes filled with natives. And they were shouting out to him a word he didn't understand, but he realized quickly they wanted him to give them something of value. And so he had already prepared for this situation if it might occur. He went down in the hole of the ship, he changed clothes, he came back out the other side brandishing a weapon. Then he went back down in the hole of the ship again, changed clothes again, came out the other side brandishing a different weapon. And Joshua Slocum did this several times so that it would give the appearance that there wasn't just one guy on the ship, but multiple guys on the ship. And the natives decided better of trying to attack him and demand something of value. And they took their canoes back to the shore and Slocum was safe. I love the picture of that story. But in this case, Joshua Slocum was running around and changing his appearance and pretending to be more than he actually was for his own self-preservation. The truth is in our lives, we often do the same thing. We run around trying to make ourselves appear to be something we're not, not because our lives are in danger, 
but simply because we want to impress other people. We want to gain their approval. We want to be thought of as being something or someone we're not, even though in our hearts we know when we receive that kind of appreciation, we're not really being appreciated for who we are. But nonetheless, we want that approval so badly that we too will run around, change our clothes, change our appearance, and show to others something on the outside that doesn't truly represent reality. And one of the places where we are tempted to do this most in our lives is with our faith. To come to church, to put on our Sunday best, to give every appearance that we are right with God, our lives are good, we're religious, we're pious, and as far as anybody can tell on the outside that they would never know that anything is off, or maybe even when we come into a place like this, supposedly to worship and connect with God, our hearts are actually really, really far away from him at the moment. We all face that temptation. We all feel the pressure sometimes to pretend to be someone we're not. And in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus digs into that very thing. He digs into the way that we practice our righteousness. And he illustrates this using two, three very important examples from ancient Jewish culture, what you might call their three pillars of practicing righteousness. Three things you hear about throughout the Old Testament, and you read about a lot in the writings of the rabbis that were very popular in Jesus' day. Giving to the poor, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. These are three pillars, three disciplines of the Jewish religious life that everybody was expected to practice. And Jesus uses them as an illustration for what it looks like to do what he's been talking about throughout this sermon. Throughout the greatest sermon ever preached, when Jesus sat down on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee, and in one setting, he gave this essential core teaching, things that Jesus said regularly on a consistent basis, all in one setting, he said them, and he constantly is drawing the heart of the true person of God back to an authentic place before God. So you remember where we began this Sermon on the Mount, talking about the Beatitudes, what our character is supposed to look like if it is truly kingdom character and, and focused on honoring Christ. Then he taught us about how we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he began teaching about some of these well-known commands from the Old Testament. How God doesn't just want us to be religious. He wants his word to be written on our hearts. And he wants us to pursue Christ-likeness in all of our hearts, in all of our ways, in all of our steps. And, and most of chapter 5 is just about our character and God's word transforming our hearts. Then we move to chapter 6 where we are today. And you might say it this way, Jesus moves from thou shalt not to thou shall. Here's how we should practice our righteousness. Here's how we should worship. Here's what our, our, our life before the Father should look like and how authenticity should describe and define the way we relate to him. And a couple of verses to hang over the next two weeks. The next two weeks we're going to talk about giving and prayer and fasting first i want to remind us 
of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 when he began that section teaching on the law. He said in verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the most common example in the Gospels of those people who ran around trying to give the appearance that they were something, somebody that they weren't. And Jesus says the true disciple is not only giving the appearance of righteousness, but is pursuing righteousness in a way that far surpasses that surface-level religion that you see in most of your leaders. And then the second verse to hang over these next two weeks is verse 1, which we read just a moment ago. As Jesus talks about giving and praying and fasting, he says, Be careful. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And the first example to illustrate this image of practicing our righteousness in front of the Father is giving. Giving generously and giving selflessly. Specifically, here he's talking about giving to the poor, giving to those who are in need, generously and selflessly. And you'll notice as we go through these verses the next couple of weeks, when Jesus talks about giving, when he talks about praying, when he talks about fasting, he doesn't say if you give, if you pray, if you fast. He says when. There's this expectation that the true person of God will be generous in giving and will be faithful in prayer and will be disciplined in fasting. It's an expectation. It's understood. It's not if you do this, it's when you do this. And with regard to giving, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. That's why they do it. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There are some scholars who say there's actual evidence of a couple of synagogues in the first century where if a person actually gave up to a certain amount, they would literally blow a trumpet. They, that, that was literally the goal, to give the amount so that the trumpet might blast. Now, I can't confirm for you whether or not that's true, but I think we can all agree at the heart of Jesus' teaching is not as literal as it is. Do not give in such a way that when you do it, it has to be announced. And all of the attention and focus is on you instead of on the father or instead of on the genuine need of the person who's being helped if you give in such a way that it's always it always must be accompanied by fanfare and and be noticed by others not only are you rejecting the reward that comes from the father when you do it with the other intention but you're also robbing the person who's being helped of their dignity you're calling attention to the fact that they're in need and the appearance is you have something and they don't. Jesus says, don't announce your giving with trumpets like those who do so to be honored by others. Or as Charles Spurgeon said, to stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture 
of hypocrisy. And Jesus literally uses the word hypocrites. If you were to go read that word in the Greek, you could read it. It's the same word, hypocrites. And in the Greek culture, that word literally meant those performers in a public play who were actually performing and pretending to be someone they weren't. Most of the time, the performers in the Greek plays wore masks to hide their identity, to play a role, to play a character. And Jesus says those who are announcing their giving in the synagogues and the streets as if trumpets are playing, they're just like actors on a stage. What they're doing is for performance. It's not for the glory of God, and it's not even for the good of the person who's being helped. When it comes to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, indeed, we see multiple examples in the New Testament that many times when they gave, they were giving as a public performance, not as an act of righteousness. In fact, these are the people that, as we read a couple of weeks ago, I'll remind us, Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, he said, when you see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, remember, they sit on Moses' seat. So you must do what they teach you, but do not do what they do, Jesus said, for they do not practice what they preach. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. But then Jesus says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of nothing but dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now listen, this is important. Every time I read the stories of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or every time I hear a story or read a story about someone who is living a hypocritical lifestyle, typically my first inclination is to condemn and to judge. But I remember what we're going to see later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' consistent teaching, do not judge others. Because remember, the measure with which you judge others, that will be measured towards you. And every time I have the temptation to point my fingers at others and to condemn their hypocrisy and call them a Pharisee, I have to check for the Pharisee in my own heart. And you have to do the same. We have to, to put ourselves in a posture before the Lord where always before we, we point out the speck in our brother or sister's eye, we take note of the plank, the log that's in our own eye. And we remember that we all have hypocrisy. We all have that Pharisee in us. And there have been many times in my Christian life where my practice of righteousness was more for appearances than genuinely what was happening inside. And I would imagine that's probably been the case for you too. So we remember Jesus' teaching is not just at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's for everyone who would choose to be 
and follow Jesus as a true disciple. And I love just some some simple ways that Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger in, in their book, A Church Called Tove, talk about the way we should think about giving in this matter. They say we must be careful not to give simply to be seen or to be celebrated or even just to feel good about ourselves. When we give, Jesus is teaching us that we should always give in ways that honor God and not ourselves. And we should give with a heart of love and compassion and generosity. And when you see other times where Jesus talked about giving and read through the New Testament, there's also this, this consistent teaching that when we give to the needy, we must always respect their dignity. If we call attention to the gift, if we get the glory, we're robbing them of their dignity. But not only that, we should give in such a way that we help the poor, we help the needy help themselves. Because there's a tendency to only give to a certain extent that we meet the need at the moment, but ultimately we still create an environment, foster an environment, where the person is dependent, where injustice still exists. And so we can just keep on giving and giving and giving rather than giving in a healthy way that doesn't hurt that helps a person help themselves because every single person is created with dignity that comes from God's image himself. So Jesus is teaching us to give in ways that honor God, but also to give in ways that love our neighbor. And I have to take us just for a moment to Mark chapter 12 because I love this beautiful moment where Jesus gives a living picture, an example of what this kind of selfless and generous giving is supposed to look like. Jesus sat down opposite of the place where the offerings were being put. And he was putting their money into the temple treasury. So here's one of the moments he was talking about with the hypocrites. And many rich people threw in large amounts. Now, I don't know if you've ever held ancient coins in your hands. But the kind of coins that the wealthy would carry are made of very heavy, solid metal. In fact, if we, if we held them today, we'd say this, the, the, the components, the materials of this coin are worth more than I could actually spend it for at the market. The wealthy had heavy coins made of silver and gold and other precious metals. The coins that the poor carried were usually made of bronze or copper, or, or they were even made of stone. And you have to be careful if you ever hold one of those ancient coins of the poor because if you are too rough with it, it'll just break in half. So imagine the wealthy bringing their large amounts of the heavy coins and putting them in the temple treasury. What sound would you hear? You'd hear the clink, the clang. You'd hear that metal hitting so everyone would know large amounts of large coins and denominations are being thrown into the temple treasury. But when the poor came to give their offering, no one might even be able to hear the sound of the gift being given. Jesus saw the poor, the, the rich, throwing in their large amounts. And then in verse 42, a poor widow came, what great timing, and put in two very small copper coins. We call them widow's mites today, worth only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow 
has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. What an amazing picture in that moment of what generous and selfless giving is supposed to look like. And I also think we can apply from Jesus' teaching here. Sometimes we just let the giving be its own reward. Somewhere out there, there is someone that you've done an act of kindness for who doesn't rem- you don't remember them, but they remember you. And those are the kinds of things that, that last forever because we may not even know that we made an impact, but we did. And when we live generously and selflessly, opportunity after opportunity comes our way to show people Christ's love, to be light in the darkness, and as we represent his love to others, to make an impact that we might not even know we make. And our reward for that is coming someday, even if we don't get it here. I love the way John Stott asked this question. Should it not be reward enough for us all in itself when through our gifts the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and the sick are healed and the oppressed are freed and the lost are saved? Isn't that reward enough to know that when we give generously and selflessly, it matters? The posture of giving that Jesus commands us to take is that we would not let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. As much as it is possible for us, and it's not always possible, but as much as it is possible for us that our giving would be done in secret, that our motives would not be for us, but for the glory of God and the love of our neighbor. And when we give that way, Jesus says, your father, make no mistake, he sees what is done in secret. He knows when we practice our righteousness and he will reward you. The posture that Jesus is describing, I believe, is one of open hands, but it's also one of an open heart. We move to the second discipline he talks about here, and we're going to split this up for two weeks. We're going to talk about prayer here in the beginning this week, and then we'll move to the Lord's Prayer as we teach through this next week. But he talks about the posture of open hands when it comes to giving, generously and selflessly, Now it's an open heart. We love our neighbor through giving. We love our Father and we seek our Father when we pray genuinely and fervently. And in the beginning of Jesus' teaching on prayer here, again he's dealing with posture. And as he talks about the posture with which we pray, he describes two different types of prayer. There's the prayer of the hypocrites. We've already heard about them. We know who they are. He says very similarly in verse 5, the hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And then in verse 7, he says, they are like the babbling pagans who think they will be heard because of their many words. And, and we can read here their, their many useless words. They babble on like pagans just talking endlessly speaking words into the air hoping something will stick and the reality is your heavenly father already knows what you need before you ask him when you think about that that picture of the the babbling of pagans 
I have read the Sermon on the Mount many times. I've taught on the Sermon on the Mount several times. And I'd never gone to look closely at the word that Jesus uses for pagans. You know, we don't typically use the word pagan very often in conversation. I I don't think we usually call people that. But what was the word that Jesus actually used here? I wondered, was it, because he doesn't call them hypocrites, so is it the word for idolaters? Is it the word for those who worship other gods? Is it the word for the Gentiles? What word does he use? And the actual word that he uses here is just the word for the nations, the peoples of the nations. And what it calls to mind for us is what was the reality of pretty much every other nation besides the people of Israel in the first century? Did they only worship one God? No, they worshiped a pantheon of gods. We see examples of this all throughout Scripture, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans or the Canaanites. They have multiple gods, men and male and female gods, that represent all of these different things that a person might pray for. And so you can see the picture of a a person who doesn't believe in the one true God, the way they would babble on and on in prayer because they're not sure if their prayers are going to be heard. They're not sure if they're going to use the magic word to get their God's attention or their idol's attention. So they're going to keep babbling on and on and on and and just putting all those words out into the air, hoping that some God, some idol, some statue somewhere will hear them and give them what they're asking for. A couple of pictures in the Bible that come to mind. Remember when Elijah has that showdown with the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah begins to taunt them it's one of my favorite parts of the story because the prophets of Baal are dancing all around the altar they're calling on the name of their gods from day to night they're cutting themselves with stones they're dancing they're trying to light things on fire and Elijah finally says maybe your gods are sleeping maybe you just need to to shout louder and wake your gods up he's taunting them and of course their gods never respond Or I think about the Apostle Paul in Athens in Acts 17. That probably came to mind for many of you. Where Paul's walking through that great city and he sees idol after idol and statue after statue and temple after temple to the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul says to the the Greeks in Athens, I can see you are very religious because you have many idols and many temples. And he says, I even noticed you have a statue to an unknown god the greeks had a statue in athens to an unknown god just in case they had missed someone maybe that god wouldn't be offended they'd say no this statue is for you it's to to catch all the gods and goddesses we've forgotten the pagans the peoples of the nations who who at the time did not know the god of israel the one true god who created everything that exists They babbled on and on and on and they could never have confidence that their gods would hear them. They would never have confidence that their gods even knew they existed or were aware of their circumstances. And listen again to what Jesus says. Do not be like them. Your heavenly Father, the one true God, he knows what you need before you even ask him. You don't have to use the magic words. You don't have to throw things against the wall just to see what sticks. 
your heavenly father the one true god he already knows what you need even before you ask so seek him with all of your heart genuinely and fervently and let me just tell you personally how i've come to understand this knowing that i have a lot more life to go prayerfully to learn more about how to pray but here's how i've come to understand how prayer works my heavenly father already knows what i need before i ask when i'm praying i'm asking god to to shape my desires and my will to that place where he already knows what i need i'm not trying to convince him to do what's not best for me and do what i want i'm praying that god would would align my heart and my will with what he knows i need and that when i pray i would seek his desires not my own desires when our desires are in alignment with his that that's the sweet spot that's where we want to be and that's what prayer looks like I, i don't believe i'm trying to convince god or trick him or change his mind or talk him into something using the right words and listen i also don't believe that i'm going to impress him when i pray who would anyone think they are that they think their human words could impress the creator of the universe when you pray jesus says go into your prayer closet go into what in the ancient world was the inner room of the house the only room that had a locking door the only place where you could have privacy so nobody's exactly sure what you're doing but you go in that room and there you pray to your father who is in secret and he seeing you will hear you and and knowing what you've done knowing you're seeking him genuinely and fervently he will reward you now there are lots of ancient christians who talk about that inner room and they describe that room in the center of the house with the locking door it had a locking door because that's where you stored valuable things so they would say literally jesus is saying you need a prayer closet you need a prayer room if you have that i do not want to discourage you use your prayer closet okay but most of the early christians who who wrote about and preached about this text focused less on the physical room and more on the inner room of a person's heart the inner chamber and i love one ancient christian uses a beautiful example the example of hannah in first samuel 1 where hannah comes into the temple but because eli the priest is there she's not comfortable going to the altar and she's not comfortable praying out loud but if you know the story of hannah she had been barren and and she was there that day begging and pleading that god's will would be that she would have a child and eli the priest sees hannah she's her mouth is moving but no words are coming out what does eli think hannah's drunk hannah's in the temple drunk but god reveals to him she is not drunk she is seeking me with all of her heart and what was hannah doing she was praying for god's will and indeed god's will and her will were aligned and she was with child and that child was samuel who becomes the last judge of israel and one of israel's most faithful prophets that prayer alignment in in the inner chamber of her heart hannah was crying out to god and she is an example of what a personal prayer life that is genuine and fervent looks like but the hypocrites 
when they pray to be noticed by people it's exactly the opposite as one ancient christian said those who sell an empty form of religion buy an empty word of praise sure they may receive praise they may receive accolades but it's empty and it's worthless it certainly is not pleasing to god instead jesus says do not be like the hypocrites but remember when you pray from the innermost part of your heart and perhaps in your prayer closet your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him not just say quickly public prayer is okay it's a biblical thing corporate prayer praying in front of people can be a very meaningful part of worship and it can be very edifying that's why we do it often when we come to worship if you doubt me on this there's many times in the new testament where people pray publicly where the church prays corporately and even jesus prays in front of people on multiple occasions it's not to be legalistic it's about the condition of our heart and what is our motivation when we seek him in prayer one last example from jesus teaching luke chapter 16 i love how this is introduced jesus told this parable to those who were confident of their own righteousness and were looking down on everyone else jesus told them this parable two men went up to the temple to pray one was a pharisee a hypocrite and the other was a very public sinner a tax collector the pharisee stood by himself and prayed god i thank you that i'm so awesome right i thank you that i am not like other people robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week and i give a tenth of all i get he's he's there's the three pillars right he's praying he fasts he gives a tenth of all he gets but the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven but he beat his breast and he said we call this the jesus prayer he said god have mercy on me a sinner we call this the jesus prayer because yes as we'll see next week jesus gave us the lord's prayer but the jesus prayer is really handy when you are at the end of your rope when you are at a low point and when you realize like the tax collector that the wounds you you have are self-inflicted you need to confess you know you're not right before god and and the prayer of the tax collector is simply god have mercy on me i'm a sinner it's a prayer of confession it's a prayer of surrender God have mercy on me I'm a sinner and Jesus says I tell you that this man the tax collector rather than the other the Pharisee went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted we talked about the posture of giving this is the posture of personal prayer to lay ourselves bare before the Lord to confess that we are sinful beings to, to surrender all of ourselves to him and to thank God that he is indeed merciful <laughs> because he is and he does forgive and he loves us and those who humble themselves and take that posture before the Lord they will be exalted or as Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount they will be rewarded because their heavenly father sees them and he knows the condition of their heart
Instead of more words, more faith. Instead of calling attention to ourselves, all the glory to God. That's the posture we take when we have open hands in giving and we have open hearts as we seek the Lord. Today I ask you what I hope is a very fair question. How are you and God today? How is your personal prayer life? Are you living in a posture of open-handedness and open-heartedness? Are you living in surrender? Is there any part of your heart that God doesn't have? Is there any part of your life that is not being lived out in obedience? Is there any place where you're not practicing righteousness? As Jesus said in the previous chapter, there's always room for improvement. Christ is our model. He is the goal. He is the aim. But today, where are you with God, and why did you come here? Why are you here? Are you, are you here to give off the appearance of something that you're not? I've done that before. Are you here because you think God will give you a good check mark for coming to church? He might. Are you here because you're not even sure, but you're here? Or, or are you willing to, at least in these last couple of minutes we have together, be here as we sing and worship and go back into the presence of God, are you, would you be willing to be here in surrender and to say to the Lord, here I am, whatever you want from me, whatever you ask, my answer is yes. Today, may we be people wherever we are who follow Christ with open hands and with open hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you today for your mercy and grace, and I thank you for the ways that you sustain me and you hold us up when, when you're all that we have. I thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, if any of us doubt how much you love us, how willing you are to forgive, would you point our eyes to the cross? Remind us of what you've done for us, how Jesus Christ gave his life that we might be right with you, that we might be able to practice righteousness at all. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, that you would lead any person in this room or watching online to make whatever confession they need to make before you. And for that person who has never surrendered their life to you at all, Lord, today would you, would you grab a hold of their heart and as we've lifted up the name of Jesus, would you draw them to yourself that today they would confess their sin, they would turn away from their sin, point their eyes to you and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And today I surrender all of my life to him. Take our hearts, Lord, as we'll sing in a moment, consecrate them that we might be Christ-like people with open hearts and open hands. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.